Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. This is a recording of Rabbi Adam Klickfeld's weekly Rashi study class. Speaking about being at the end of things, we're not quite at the end, but like we're, we're, we're moving healthily towards the end of Parshat Shmot. We, uh, our average is about 18 months per Parsha. Well, at least one of you has a record of where we were when we uh, started Parsha Shmot, but I, I don't remember if we started Shmot in the pandemic. I seem to think that we didn't because I have a memory of celebrating all of the book of Breshit in person. So I feel like we've been doing Parsha Shmot, which is a long Parsha, by the way, for a long time. Anyone have a record as to when we did it? It, was, it, it yeah. was late 2019. Late 19. Because I, I know it was then because that's when I started. Wow. Okay. So this Parsha has taken us longer. Maybe we go slower on Zoom. Don't know. Uh, maybe there's just, it's a Parsha that we all know a lot about, right? So we're saying, there's a lot of things that we're saying about it. It doesn't bother me one way or another, but it's just interesting to note that um, we're, 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 we're longer than our usual um, amount of time we spend in a Parsha. Here we go. Chapter four. Um, I know that we at least began the Rashi's on verse 19, but I don't remember if we completed them. I think we did the reference back to Datan Abiram. Is, does anyone want to confirm that? Did we finish the Rashi on verse 19? That the, um, we did not finish it. All right. So let's jump in. We'll do it quickly so we can get moving forward. Um, chapter four, verse 19. God said to Moshe in Midian, go, return. We, we forgot to mention this last time. Yet another go, return. Right? We've had that several times where we've got those two verbs um, in combination with each other. Go, return um, to Egypt. Well, we didn't mention this last time either, that w- what word might we, what, what might we have expected instead of, the word Mitzrayim after the words Lech Shuv. What's missing or what could have been different? Go return. What's the next English word? Two. Two, right? Lech Shuv El Mitzrayim, Lech Shuv Limitzrayim, or what's the biblical way of saying it? Lech Shuv Mitzrayma. Mitzrayma, right? I hadn't picked up on that last time. I'm not sure why that's missing. Uncleus puts it in. If you look in the in the uh, Aramaic, Amar Adonai Lamoshev Mijan Ezil, that's go, Tuv, that's Shuv, right? The Shin Tuf um, uh, interchange in Aramaic Hebrew. Le Mitzrayim. Uncleus says, Uncle says, of course, there has to be an indirect object there or pre- a preposition there. Uh, not sure why it's missing. And um, as far as I can tell, there isn't um, um, classic material on the missing Le or or El or Mitzrayma. Uh, be that as it may. Why, uh, Moshe? Kimetu koha anashim. If we want to uh, play with Trump again, uh, we have a, a relatively rare place where a munach katon is built into one word. Kimetu koha anashim. Hamevakshim et nashecha. Who are seeking your soul, which means who are, who are seeking to end your life, right? And I, I said nafshecha, soul, without unconsciously, because we normally think of the word nefesh as related to soul in modern Hebrew, but in biblical Hebrew, it's really your life, um, your, your physical life. Okay. And then on, ra- on that, and again, I think we did a lot of this, so I'll do it a little bit quicker, uh, and then I'll assign something for the next verse. Rashi says, Kimetu kol anashim, 
Mihim, who are the people who are seeking out Moshe's life? You could imagine it might have been a reference to Pharaoh, who had put a death sentence on Moshe, or the family of the slain Egyptian, or as Rashi points out, no, it's the it's the Israelites whom you um, whom you uh, irritated by getting involved in their fight. Mihem Datan Veaviram, Dothan and Abiram. Um, the Rashi on those verses had said that the two people who were fighting that Moshe intervened in were Datan and Abiram, uh, the the same ones who are going to be. Um, who are going to be in Korach's camp. And then, of course, Rashi asks the obvious question on himself. If the verse says that the ones who are seeking your life have died, and I, Rashi, am identifying because I identified him there as a Tan Vaviram, but know that they're alive in Parsha Korach, and yeah, in Mukdam and Torah, in some sense there's no chronology in the Torah, but there's no, res- there's no, there's no nod towards the automatic resurrection of the dead in the Torah either. Chaim uh, Hayu, but they were alive. Ah, Rashi uh, brings um, a rather well-known concept in the Jewish um, in, in the Jewish law and lore about poverty. They descended from their um, material wealth. And one who is poor is thought of as one who is dead. And we lingered there for a little bit that there are several ways of understanding that rabbinic notion, right? And that rabbinic notion is, is, not, gen, is not primarily used in Parsha Hamikra in understanding a verse in the Torah. It's, under, it's, it's, it's in the material, the voluminous material about our obligation to the poor. And one way of understanding it is that's very harsh, right? That if you, if, you know, that your life has no worth if, you, if, you're, if you're that impoverished, right? And as if, as if you are dead. Another way of looking at it is it's a critique of society who, frankly, all the time, then and now, very much so walks by people who are impoverished, almost as if they were not alive, right? And we've probably done it in the last 24 hours. And we live in a society where there's, where there's an overwhelm of poverty, and, it, and, it, and it's almost hard not to. It's almost hard not to, to, to um, keep some emotional and psychological distance from someone who is, someone who is that indigent because if you consider them to be a full living human being, then your obligations to them are overwhelming, right? Um, and it's hard to imagine what it looked like back then. But um, I prefer to, I prefer the read on this read as being it having to be a rabbinic critique of society, not a rabbinic critique of the impoverished. Um, and it resolves Rashi anything. Yeah, uh, all kimetu uh, kol anashim, all the ones who are seeking your death, who once had power, who once had influence, who once had money. They're not dead, but they can't hurt you anymore because they are amongst the poor, even in Egypt, right? They are, they're no longer, you know, um, living, living high on the hog while their fellow um, slaves are, are toiling. Okay, so that, I think we dealt with most of that last week, but uh, there was a bit of a refresher. Rick, your hand is up. Yeah, um, on Hamivakshim and uh, the people requesting... Um, do we want to talk about the next story where there's somebody else who wants to request that he die? Or do we want to leave that until we get there? Because uh-huh. <laughs> um, it's the same verb. Yeah. And I there's think, lots of parallels between the two. So I think because the anecdote to which you're referring to is not that well known, right? Even though it's right there in Parshat Shmot, 
Yeah, people avoid the story, yeah. Well, or they just don't know it. It comes at the end of the Torah reading, right? And people are already out at Kiddush Club or something. Um, And it's a weird one. Um, Uh Let's wait till we read it in real time because it's going to be interesting for those people who are approaching it for the first time and then remind us to come back at that point. Um, That's, I think, a chapter six. No, it's it's the oh, it's right the, coming it's up. 24, verse right, 24. It's right coming up. So we, yeah. we'll get there in a few weeks. So just remind us to go backwards. Okay. I missed class last week and I caught the podcast and we started to touch on um, Dotan and Abiram at the end of last week's class. And when that came up, I was a little jarred, like, a, you know, what's the connection? How do you get to them here? And then um, something sparked in me. I think it was you, Rabbi Klickfeld, who at one point referred to them as men of renown, which is exactly how they're referred to in Parshat Korach. Right. And that is not necessarily a positive attribute, I don't think. Um, And it took me back to... um, when I lane, I often start preparing my laning. I take a good chunk of time Shabbos afternoon, which I sometimes find is very interesting because I find myself making connections to last week's Parsha, which I don't know that I would do if I didn't have it so clearly resonating in my mind, having heard it just a few hours ago. And that happened to me once with Parsha Lech that all of a sudden I saw Abraham in counterpoint to the Tower of Babel story. And um, so what are they doing there? They want to na'aselan Hashem. And what does Avram constantly do? He's constantly b'shem Hashem, right? So are you trying to make a name for yourself or are you proclaiming God's name? And here it takes me back to, you know, what, uh, you know, of this section of Torah, like what is that powerful piece when Moses asks you know, what are, what should I tell the people when they ask for your name mm. and God's answer? And, you know, followed by the Elohei Abraham Yitzchak Yaakov. And I, I don't know, I think it's a very interesting counterpoint. Like why bring Datan and Abiram here as the nemesis to Moshe to set up this thing of, are we, um, you know, are we going to work B'Shem Hashem or are we working for our own names and I traced the use of Anshashem in, in Torah, and it turns out the only two places it occurs is not quite in the Tower of Babel story, but just before the Noah story, it talks about the Nephilim and that the Nephilim were Anshashem. And then, A, they disappear from history. We have that one line about the Nephilim, and that's it. And the very next line is about the wickedness on the earth. So many commentators associate the Nephilim with the wickedness. And uh, so I just think it's sort of interesting at this moment, at the birth of monotheism and at this moment, at the birth of a nation, we, you know, to see that contrast between Shem Hashem or your own name. What, what, what are you working towards? Such a rich comment, Joanna, such a rich comment. I wanted to pull up the verse that you're referring to in Parshat Korach, um, in the third verse of Parshat Korach, when Datan Babiram, who are mentioned right here as the um, as the co-conspirators, they made their own kahal, their own congregation against Al here means against on against Moshe's Aaron by Yomru Alehem, and they said to them, Rav Lachem, too much of you, Kihol Haida Kulam all of the entire uh, 
congregation should be holy and special. God is amidst all of them, meaning all of us. Uh, sorry, I'm reading the wrong verse. It's a great verse, but I meant verse two. They got up, they stood up in front of Moshe. 250 of them. Princes of their, of their group. Um, called out or chosen by the assembly. Um, and it's interesting, it's even hyphenated as if it's a, as if it's a phrase, right? Like men, men of name. And I, it's a wonderful contrast, Joanna, that you're talking about is are they, to, to, to be the, the person of your own name or the person of the name of God, right? And I think that that, I think that that um, conflict is a central conflict in, um, in, the, in the life and the soul of the religious person, right? Am I living, um, you know, for myself, which is what evolution pushes me towards and what anthropology uh, shines a light on, or am I, am I living for uh, a greater reality called the creator of the universe? And I love your, um, your comparison of this to all the material we had earlier in this story about which name God is going to be known by. It's just a, a, a beautiful comment. So thank you for that. Um, okay. So that takes us to the end of verse 19, which we had played with last week. But now let's start verse 20. Uh, if there are no, uh, there are no um, concerns about that. Uh, Rebecca Menas, do you want to read verse 20? Sure. 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 Um, so, uh, Moshe took his wife and his sons um, and mounted them on the, uh, the donkey and returned to the land of Egypt. And Moshe took uh, God's uh, rod in his hand. Good. Right. Excellent translation. I love the um, I use mounted because it's it's the he feel. It's the it's the harkiv like rochev is to ride. So to make it causative, it's to it's to allow someone to ride to place them, mount them onto the onto the donkey. Um, all right, let's linger on the verse itself. Things that the verse bring up, questions on the language or the syntax or the order of the words or uh, questions that you would ask um, connected to the narrative. Floor is open. Which I'm sad at you at this verse. Joanna? What is the rod of God? Right. So we're, 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 we're being told that he took something and the fact that it's with the heya right, that it's, it's a specific rod makes us um, wonder if we should know what that is, right? So question number one, what is Mateha Elohim? We haven't seen that phrase before. Good. We, we know it from the story, like we can picture it, but it's introduced as a known, um, a known phrase. And what does that refer to? Good. We, we can, we can, it's a question to which we can also propose answers. It's the Mateh that he was using in the previous scene, but to call it Mateh Elohim is a something. Norm, Rachel? I think it's interesting that it's on the ass or that ass not on an ass. It's like there's a specific, you know, we were talking about men of repute. Maybe this is a donkey of repute. Great. So Baruch Shekivanta, Rashi's going to go in that same direction. Um, sometimes an entire world can be built into a hay, right? So it doesn't say, Vayarkivem al, um, 
al-Hamor on a donkey, but the donkey. Now, the donkey might just mean his donkey, but Rashi is going to peer down that hole as well. By the way, Joanna Baruch Shekivant to you as well, because if you look at Uncleus, Uncleus also is not comfortable with it simply being Matelohim, and he he uh, does his occasional thing where he gives a commentary as he's giving a translation. Udvar Moshe Yat Itte. Um, Rosh, uh, Moshe took his wife, Biyat Benohi, and his sons, the Arkevinun al Hamara, and um, um, mounted it on the donkey, the Tav Shuv, returned La Ara de Mitzvahim to the land of Egypt, Unesiv Moshe, and Moshe took Yat et Chutra, stick, Chagajia, not Chutra Hashem, Chutra, the it Aviduve, Nisin, Min Kadam Adonai, Biade. He took the stick with which he had done those magic tricks in front of God in his hand. So Uncle says, what's Matelohim? It's not God's rod, right? It's not um, the, a rod that he got, he bought a particular store. It's the very rod. And what he's saying makes sense to us, but it's interesting that he does it in a translation. He's taking the rod that is now being associated, at least in Moshe's mind and our mind, with the stuff with, with, with which Moshe does his God work, right? But he, he puts it... <coughs> directly in the translation, um, because he's uncomfortable with the same thing you were uncomfortable with. So good. But what's interesting to me is when that first happened at the burning bush, it seemed to be just an ordinary rod. It was the rod that Moshe so happened to have with him at the moment that all the, and maybe because of what happens at the burning bush, all of a sudden now it's this very special rod. Yeah, I, I, cor- yes, I think you're right. And I think that Uncleus is weighing in on that on the, on the, on the latter one, he's saying that this was not a rod, you know, although there, I think it's, I think this rod is one of the things that Perkebo says that existed from before all of creation. Um, I have to check to make sure, but I think it is, or if it's not there, it's somewhere else that this, that this rod existed in primordial times, but in the scene, it's just what he's got in his hand. In fact, Moshe, God asked Moshe, what's that thing in your hand? Go back to, um, beginning of chapter four, um, Vayan Moshe Vayomer, Moshe answered and said, Vehain lo yaminu they're not going to believe me, lo yishmalu b'kuli, they will not listen to my voice or heed my voice, ki yomru, they're going to say, lo ni ra'alecha, they're going to say, God has not appeared to you, vayomer elab adonai, mazeh biyadecha, God said, what's that thing in your hand? Vayomer mateh, it's my stick, right? So it actually, dafka begins as not mateh Elohim or mateh adonai, but mateh Moshe. Matek Tzun, right? The, the rod with which he is doing his shepherding work. And that gets transformed in the scene into a, into a potentially um, magic uh, performing rod. And that's why I imagine Uncleus is saying it's not Matelohim, a Matel that came from the heavens. It's a Matelohim of Tashem. Matelohim. It's the it's the God rod with respect to the previous scene, right? The rod with which Moshe did all of his, um, all of the, all those tricks and that he's going to do it uh, in the future. Uh, Rick and then Stevie. Hi. So uh, in verse 20, <clears throat> you don't need the second Vayikach Moshe. You already have a Vayikach Moshe at the beginning. Um, and you don't need at Matelohim. Of course, it's going to be in his hand if he's picking it up. So there's there's extra words there that you don't need. So if they're there, they they mean something, right? So it was a um, 
again, I think it's a link to the next story, but um, he, he takes uh, it, it. It's a big thing to take the uh, the rod. Yeah. Um, and Rashi is going to pick up on the first one of those points you made on why Moshe is picking up the rod. Well, why, you were asking why we have a second by Yikach, and Rashi is going to ask a similar question, which is why are we being told that he's picking up the rod here? And yes, the Biado seems extraneous, although sometimes when we are reductive on uh, extraneous words, we fall into, I, I'm sure I've told this joke, or you know it from somewhere else in this class, the fresh fish sold here daily joke. You know, right? The, you know, the, Do it the, again. <laughs> do it again. Uh, I, I won't do the whole joke, but you'll get the point where where uh, a guy is very proud that he's going to open up a fish store and he's a big sign saying fresh fish sold here daily. And and he's going to attract lots of customers. And the first day, a little Jew walk, walks by and says, fresh, feel, fresh fish sold here daily. Like, you don't need the word fresh. You wasted paint because what? You, are you selling not fresh fish? Of course, it's fresh fish. You're not going to sell stinky fish. So he erases fresh fish sold here daily. Right. The next the next uh, guy comes up the next day and says, fish sold here daily. You wasted paint. You didn't need the word sold. You're not giving it away. It's a store. You could have erased that. So he erased it. Fish here daily. Next guy. You, you don't need the word here. You're not selling it there. You're selling it here. Ba-dum-bum. And so by the end of the story, there's no sign whatsoever. So yes, uh, you don't need the biado because where else would he have taken the, um, taken uh, with, with what else with what else is he would have taken the rod and yet at some point we do need language even in a terse text to actually uh fill out the scene but points taken and rashi will respond to the first point of it uh stevie uh yeah so if you we, we've been talking about the rod in verses two three and four but if you look at verse 17 right rashi doesn't even comment but there's right it seems to be God is presenting a rod. Like with this rod, you'll take and you'll do my signs, or you'll perform signs. Um, and if I were a, you know, biblical critic and not necessarily assuming that each verse knows about each other verse, I would say that verse twenty is aware of verse seventeen, but not necessarily aware of verses two, three, and four. That right, this could. And just the the shot of the text, like verse 17 could be a new rod. Fascinating. Thank you for that, um, Stevie. I want to pick up on that, that the rod makes an appearance in verse 17 after the actual um, performance of the, of the signs. And it's Hamate Hazet. Like it's right. So remember that this, and we have this and that in English, but in Hebrew, we just have Zet. So it could be like, Take, yeah, right. take this rod, the one we're talking about, or take that, or like take this rod from scratch. Uh, I did not pick up on it at the time. I'm wondering if any of the of the of the translations that we have uh, nodded towards that possibility. I'm just looking at Everett Fox on that verse. Um, yeah, you know, he. he I, I'm not surprised, but he says it plainly. And this staff, take in your hand. And so the this could either mean the this that we've been using or a new gift, but it, it's a, it's a really interesting idea. The, the biblical critical notion. I don't, I don't, I don't have in front of me the, the accepted um, tradition of the overlay of strands here. If, if this is um, thought by biblical critics to be part of more than one um, woven uh, part of the text, J E P or D. Uh, so it would be interesting if someone made that contention that you have verse 17 and our verse in one 
section, whereas this, this, the previous scene with the rod in a different, except that, well, it would just be interesting to see if someone made that, that, um, that supposition. Great. Thanks, Stevie. Good pickup. Uh, Barry? Well, going along with the, the same way of thinking, um, we, we have two actions. And one action, Moshe uh, pulls together his belongings, his wife and his son, onto the donkey. Then he 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 picks up the rod, and and I'm following uh, Rick's example. I'm sneaking ahead to the next verse, and uh, God's telling Moshe, "Take what is I've given in your hand as the signs." So th- this rod has its own existence, and it it, it and as we said, it, it it accumulated its own re- existence, beginning with the signs that Moshe instructed Moshe to do on the ground there at the at the burning bush hmm. so it's 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 its own existence it's it's a separate he, he he pulled together his belongings and then he picked up the rod yeah good so that's a different way of resolving the question of why the rod is being picked up again and we'll compare that Barry when we get to Rashi's commentary but you're both responding to the same question as to why is this a different pickup? Or you could ask, and as Rashi will, or Rashi's question will will imply this ask, hasn't he already picked up the rod? Right. So uh, we'll 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 hold that in our in our minds until we get there. Joanne, is your hand up again or still? Again. Okay. Um. So a couple of comments. Um. It's not vayelech vayashov, but here you know vayikach vayashov, and still you know you're kind of getting that play on that parallelism of two verbs, this drumbeat that seems to be going through this section, and also the two vayikachs are interesting because by the fact of having two, it separates the two things. Moses took his family. Moses took his, his the rod of God and that those were the two important things to take with him. And this tension that came up in the last session also, and we hinted at it even today a little bit about between, you know, being with the people and being with God and what are the important things. And I think by having the two verbs, it stresses both of them. Um, Particularly in contrast, I think it was Rick who brought it up last time, the Jacob story, because when Jacob leaves, he takes, he leaves Lavan. He does two things. He mounts his family on horses uh, or donkeys or whatever. And it clearly says there he takes his possessions with him. And it's so interesting to me how you were talking now, Barry, because what jumped out at me is, in fact, there is no mention of possessions in, in this verse. Moses took his family and he took um, God's ride. And whether or not he took any possessions with him, you know, I guess you could argue it both ways. But if he did, it wasn't important enough to mention as it was in the Jacob story. And I think it really makes it stand out here what Moses is taking to Mitzrayim. What was important in the Jacob story is that he accumulated so much uh, through God. Uh, I'm fascinated, Joanna, by... You're reading the Duvayikach to suggest that Moshe is going back to Egypt as a man of the family and a man of God, right? That he's got two identities, two roles, two two, thing, two, two things that he is taking with him that are defining uh, who he is in that moment, which kind of reminds us, perhaps, in a way that's going to be reinforced when we get to Parshat Yitro and, and 
and, and, and whom he chooses to greet after Exodus, it reminds us that at this stage, he's at least half husband, father, half prophet of the Holy One. And that, and that balance shifts radically. But right now he's got, you know, in, in two hands, right? Right. The Hasidic notion of, in, you know, in one hand, I'm nothing, I'm dust. And the world was created for me. You have to balance humility with a sense of personal grandeur. So uh, Moshe has two hands. He's got on one hand, the, his family who he's taken with him and, and, and his, his connection to the, to the Holy One and his task. That's a really wonderful description. And I don't know if this is what you were hinting at, but that tension surfaced already last week when there was a reference to the fact of Moses going to Yitro and not to Tzipporah, right? And comes up again um, later in the leprosy episode where there's this understanding, or at least an understanding, if not the understanding, an understanding that um, at the time of the giving of the Ten Commandments, when... uh, spouses were forbidden from having marital relations with each other. And then afterwards it was permitted. Moses never resumed marital relations with Tzipporah. And that's what Miriam was speaking up against. And, um, you know, so this sense that, you know, he, he pulls away. So there seems to be this building tension of, you know, how do you live in and work in both of those worlds? I don't think I've ever been to a rabbinic conference where that archetype was not mentioned at least once, right? You can imagine it's a very um, common and fetching thing for people who've chosen service to the Jewish people and God to be thinking about, not in a self-aggrandizing way, connecting ourselves to Moshe, but wondering what the cost is. And I suppose you could do a version of this for any career, right? But because it's more, it's really on the nose as we think about Moshe's trying to hear God's word and therefore do something for the people, what it means to, you know, hold in your hands, you know, your, your, your personal family life and your devotion to Am Yisrael and to the particular community that you're claimed by, happily claimed by, proudly claimed by. So um, whether it's the scene in Yitro um, that we mentioned the, uh, um, the, the, the wonderful and painful scene of um, Moshe being called back to the people right before he hits the rock when he's sitting Shiva essentially for Miriam. Uh, there's a lot of dipping back into Moshe as the archetype Jewish leader and what was what it cost him perhaps in his family dynamics and how, um, you know, we in this era um, uh, need to find a better way of, of, of balancing that. And I think better than, and frankly, I, I think I, I give this generation of clergy higher grades than two generations ago. My Saba, my father's father, um, who was a dear, lovely man, uh, who I miss dearly, um, and it was a reform rabbi. I, I, I'm not sure he balanced, I'm not sure he had models or training and how to balance that well. Um, and I think that that cost him a certain amount of enjoyment in his life. Um, and he served admirably and honorably the Jewish people. So it's a very common theme when rabbis talk to each other. Uh, okay, uh, Rebecca and then Alan. Um, I was struck by what Barry said when he, he used the word possessions um, for, for, for Tzipora and sons. But then as you continue the sentence, it, it says he mounted his family, Vayeshev Arta Mitzrayim. So it doesn't say they all returned to Egypt. Mm. He returned. So really, the the emphasis here is that they are luggage <laughs> or possessions. 
That's great. So again, Baruch Shekivant, that's the phrase you say when you, you're congratulating someone for, uh, for anticipating what another sage said. So if you look on our page, look what Sforno says on that. Sforno picks up on the, um, on the singular plural there. Verse 20, uh, b- bottom left of page Mem Chet uh, in the Torah Chaim, if you have ours. If not, oh, yeah, I keep forgetting. I have Safari. I could just, just open it up. Let me do that. That's worth it because not everyone has that. So hold on. Sometimes I forget exactly what's in front of us. 420. Okay. Let me share the screen. Okay, so Sforno on 420. So he says, He mounted them on the donkey, La Holy Cham, to lead them. That's the he feel of to go, Min Hamidbar, from the desert, Limidyan, to Midyan, Levet Hamav, to the house of his father-in-law. So Sforno is reading, like there, there are three places that we should be thinking about geographically. There's Midian, there's the wilderness where he had been encamped with his family, perhaps, where the burning bush was, and then there's Egypt. And so this encounter happens in, not in Midian, um, it happens in uh, the wilderness, um, although it's, it's challenging to think about the geography because verse 19 says, that God is spoken to Moses in Mijan. But leave that unresolved for a second. Sforna was reading Moshe here as hanging out out there with the sheep. And so he, he brings his family onto the um, donkey to lead them back to the primary encampment in Midian. And then Vayeshev Arts Mitzrayim, and he went to the land of Egypt. Hulavado, he himself went. Achar Shiluchehem, after he had sent them back. And that is evocative, and it's worth looking at that now, of the beginning of um, Parshat Yitro. We'll just get there. So there's a really interesting phrase, and no one knows exactly what to do with it. Um, beginning of Parshat Yitro. Yeah, so verse two. So verse one, by Yishma Yitro Chohem Midian, Yitro, the priest of Midian, heard, um, the father of Moshe, heard at Kol Asher Salohim Moshe, all the things that God had done for Moses, Uli Israel, and to Israel, Amo, his people. Ki Hotzi Adonai Yisrael Mitzrayim, because he had, God had um, extracted Israel from Egypt. Vaikach Yitro, Yitro takes, Yitro Chotein Moshe, Yitro, the father-in-law of Moshe, takes, at Sipora, his wife Sipora, Eshet Moshe, the wife Moshe, Achar Shilocheha, after her being sent. So, so Sforno knows that verse, right? And the question is, sent when? Did she ever go into Egypt? Right? Some people read this as saying that she had gone back into Egypt with um, Moses, as we're going to see a, a kind of scene in a few verses, the scene that Rick wants us to get to. Um, and therefore, at some point, she was dispatched from Egypt back to Midian, right, sent out before the, the, the borders closed. Some people, Sforna one of them says, she never went to Egypt at all. In fact, in the scene that we're in right now, she's sent back to Midian. And that's why it's a singular. And he went back to Egypt, to Egypt not they. So uh, wonderful. Um, does any of the tr- do all the translator translations put it as he um, in verse? Um, yeah. So uh, Everett Fox elides that. Does not weigh in on whether the by um, Yeshev um, 
whether or not, uh, where's the verse? Vayashov Artsa Mitzrayim is just he. Ever Fox says, so Moshe took his wife and his sons and mounted them, great choice of words, upon a donkey to return to the land of Egypt. Really interesting. He turns it into an infinitive, maybe because he doesn't want to be a machri, he doesn't want to decide how to read it. But um, that singular Vayashov is, um, uh, begs the question about who actually went back and who did not. Great. Uh, Alan. Yes, uh, two comments. Uh, first, with the references to uh, the comparisons between Moshe and Yaakov, Joel Grossman gave an excellent trash about that last Shabbat. Correct. If you want to hear it and be able to get those things, I would highly recommend it. And, and uh, it, was, it was recorded, and it should be out in the podcast if it isn't already, but it was recorded. Okay, that's the aside. The question is, in verse 19, we're talking about it's Vayomer Adonai, the tetragamon, yud heh vav But yet when we talk about the stick, it's Mateha Elohim. And I don't know if there's any meaning to that, and particularly here, I don't want to go into the critical analysis, but you know, traditionally it's Adonai is the God of mercy, and Elohim is the God of justice. So is this stick going to be the stick of justice, but it's going on a merciful mission from God? Very nice. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna try to resolve it, but but I'm gonna applaud the uh, observation. And yes, the, the, there's a there's a, a classic and frequent attribution of Elohim to the God of Justice and Adonai is the God of Mercy. If if you if you do that on every single verse of the Torah, the Torah loses its coherence, right? Because at some point it's just God's name. But there are certain places where it's it's begging to be read that way. Um, so yes, this is not Mate Adonai; it's Mate Elohim, which makes sense, right? He's he's not going in to bring that stick. I mean, it's it's Adonai with respect to the Israelites and the the impact that the stick magic is going to have the Israelites. It certainly ain't Adonai with respect to the Egyptians. They're going to be feeling the wrath of. It's not the carrot. It's it's actually the stick for them. Great, great, Alan. Uh, Leonard, Rebecca. So the um, <clears throat> on eighteen two there back in Yitro, the Rashi's comment he quotes Mechelta. He makes it explicit that they went back to Yitro. He says, you know, Lechi Leveta Vicha. Yeah, and actually, um, right, and he Rashi on that verse brings us back to our verse. Uh, let's look at it briefly and then we'll we'll get to it in real time in a few years uh-huh um more than a few years it could be a decade before we get there hold on so this is rashi on achar shilucheha you see the hebrew too after her being sent when the holy one said to moshe in midian in our verse lech shuv mitzrayim go and return to egypt and then Moshe took his wife and his sons, etc. And Aaron came and met him in the mountain of God. Um, right, so, he, so Rashi is basically reading that, that whole, at least Rashi and Yitro is reading this scene to mean that the only ones returning to Egypt are Moshe and Aaron meets Moshe individually and that... Um, uh, Tzipor and the kids waited out the war in safety in Midian. Yeah. Although it's interesting that on our verses, I don't see anything um, 
in Rashi in, on verse 19 or 20 that makes it obvious that that's how he's reading it here. But he's referencing himself when he gets to the verse, Achar Shiluchecha. But there's nothing that I can see in Rashi here that forces us to read it that way. Uh, okay, uh, Barry and then Joanna, and then we'll see what Rashi says, which we've already anticipated a little bit. Well, um, going back, to, he, he puts um, his wife and child on, on the donkey uh, and then return. The, the, the only one who can return is someone who's come from a place. And uh, only only Moshe has come from, so he's the only one who can return. Oh, great. That's really great. Everyone see that? That the that if we're taking Bayashov literally, then Tsipora can't return to Mitzrayim because she's never been there. That's really great. Thanks but, for that. But then we have this juxtaposition of, of different timings. It's I almost envisioned this this um the story being patched together by different tailors and and you can almost see the stitching yeah. um, t- stitching these different stories in, in 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 this complex yeah i mean if you go back to the mid 19th century in the in, in the german schools of biblical criticism particularly starting out not in the jewish realm there were certain chapters or scenes in the torah that were screaming out more than others this is a woven text right and um, it was utter, utter sacrilege to to go down that road, although we've discussed this here and there. Certain medieval commentators, including Ibn Ezra, have at least winked at that, right? Winked at certain places in the Torah where it's hard just to midrashically weave, weave everything together. The way Ibn Ezra resolves it is not by a biblical criticism analysis, but by saying that they were you know, Moshe was given Ruach HaKodesh in certain situations to therefore write about things that were going to happen after his death, or how, how do you, how do you narrate your own death, right? But so, so the medieval, some medieval commentators are at least alert to it. But when the German scholars in the 19th century started to look at stories, particularly um, the story of, of Yosef being sold into slavery and the Ishmaelim and the Midianim and the Soharim, uh, they were just asking to be uh, iodine traced uh, in terms of where each um, each thread came from. Um, I don't, I, it's been a long time since I read like biblical crit- critical theory in um, on, you know, in situ, like on, on location. Right. So I don't remember if, if this scene was like a classic scene for Wellhausen and some of the other um Biblical critics in the 19th century, but it may have been right. It may be that there that the scene is just bursting with with things that, in as Stevie was saying was before, that wonder if they're from more than one source. Joanna, talking about singulars and plurals, Banav, his sons, um, at the end of chapter two, we only heard about the birth of Gershon, one son. We haven't yet heard of the second son. Yeah. who is not introduced, I believe, until that it kind of, we were kind of right around it at the beginning of Parshat Dietro. And also, um, I know you said you don't want to address this till we get there, but that incident with Sipora and her sons that we're going to get to in a few weeks' time, in there, it only refers to one son again. So there's something, you know, when does a second son born? How does it fit into the narrative? Why haven't we been told his name yet? I think there's a question mark there. Right. Everyone see that? Banav in verse 20, 
grammatically means his sons. If it was his son, it would be Beno, right? And if you look uh, ahead just a few verses to verse 23, to the, to the scene that um, Rick's been pointing us to all class, at the end of the verse, we won't, we won't linger on it, but Anochi Horeg et Bincha Bichorecha, I am going to kill your son, your firstborn. Now there, the fact that the line is, I'm going to kill your son, your firstborn, does not exclude the fact that he has more than one son. It's just a way of saying, which son? Your first son. But I get your point that uh, we have a reference to Moshe's sons, but only one son has been introduced to us. Yeah. But if you keep reading, Brit Mila is done only on one son. Presumably, don't both sons need to have Brit Mila? Right. But Tichrot at Orlat Bena, she, she cut the foreskin of her son, her one son. Yeah. Yep. And I'd never thought about that. I'd never, I'd never um, been, um, I never paid attention to the plurality of Banab in this verse. So, so many wonderful things being exposed in this class today. And we haven't even gotten to Rashi. Who needs Rashi? You're all Rashis. Rick. Okay. Well, since you're there with Bani, Here we go. when, when, uh, when uh, uh, in 22, when uh, God says, you should tell Pharaoh, Ko Amar Adonai, Bini v'chori. This is the only place that I think, unless I'm totally wrong, when Moses, when God says to Moses and Aaron, "Tell him this," the, he doesn't actually do it. And and the bini here, I think, Sipora hears the bini, and that triggers what she has to do. But um, bini v'chori, um, they don't actually say that in front of Pharaoh that I know. Right, and it's an interesting. It says shalach et ami, but not this bini stuff. Yeah. And it's an interesting, rather, I don't know if it's the only time, but it's a rather rare reference by God of Israel to a firstborn child. And it's all hanging out in a scene where we're discussing the status um, and the safety of Moshe's firstborn child, Moshe Tzipora. So yes, um, that, that's a very powerful juxtaposition. Uh, Rebecca and then Barry, and then we're going to read Rashi. Um, I'm just wondering, based on what Joanna said, is... Um, whether the banav here is the the plural for a son and some daughters, so for that reason, there's a there's the brit only for the son, and um, as is often the case, instead of saying banav uvnotav, it's just banav, but it includes the daughters. So the supposition would be he had many children. We're only told about the male children because that's what the Torah cares about. The only son he has is Gershom, but but a child, a son and two daughters would be Banav, and therefore that and Eliezer really doesn't exist yet. It's interesting. Um, let's, let's compare some translations. Does any translation of that, of that verse in front of you not translate Banav as sons? Everett Fox says sons. So Moshe took his wife and his sons and mounted them upon a donkey. Does any translation you have say children? I know people have translations in front of them. Does JPS say sons? Mine says sons. Uh, Larry Herman, Arya Kaplan, what does he say? Sons, and so does uh, Alter. Yeah. I have heard that it says sons. And so does Saperstein. All the translators are weighing in on the fact that, that Banav specifically means sons, but it's a really good question that was raised about how we're supposed to make sense of the following scene where it's one son that's implicated by Tzipora, and then the fact that Eliezer isn't named until later. 
Great Ramba- Ramban is interesting. He he says that uh, Tzipporah was pregnant with Eliezer at the time. Uh-huh. But Ari Kaplan says that, that Eliezer had already been born. He might have just been born since this was before a circumcision not yet na- and not yet named. Yeah, Ramban says that she's, uh, she says she's pregnant, but by the time she gets back to Yitro, he's finally born, so he's included in the Banav. You know, he, he, he sent along his sons who, were, who, who, by the time they got there, were both going to exist. Right. Barry, okay, you're our last pre-Rashi comment. So I just want to go back to the stitching uh, and the donkey. Uh, we'll end there, I guess. Um, Moshe was alone at the, at the mountain with his dialogue. Uh, his family didn't accompany him as a shepherd going to take care of sheep. Uh, then he returns to um, uh, his father-in-law, all right, and, and request permission to leave. And, and then he puts them on the donkey. So where is she? She's in Midian, where um, not. And so why does he put her on the donkey? Where are they going to go? She's already home. And, and but, but then she's on the road uh, to take care of the uh, the circumcision. So uh, th- there's a lot of stitching. It's, it's so heavily stitched here. Um, how many layers can you look at? Not to mention the stitching after the circumcision, but I'm pumped. Okay, on that note, let's go back to Rebecca Menes, who is um, reading the verse, and let's have you read the Rashi. There are two Rashis, and both of the questions that are implied by Rashi's comments have been raised by members of the class today. Let's see what he says. Okay. Ala chamor. Chamor meyuchad, hua chamor shechavash Abraham lakidat Yitzchak. Okay, so pause. So, so the first thing Rashi says is "chamor chamor hamyuchad." What does that mean? It's it's, this, it's a special donkey. It's the donkey that Abraham uh, rode to uh, to the Akedah. Right. So we translate "myuchad" in modern Hebrew as "special." It might here mean like like singular or they didn't know this word, obviously, but archetypal, some kind of platonic donkey, right? The a donkey that that goes throughout history um, and, and keeps popping up like Elijah never does. Right. So that's, and that's responding to the same question that one of you asked, why is it ha chamor? Right. And we all know that, that, um, that verse, the beginning of Akkad Eschak, second day of reading to Rosh Hashanah. Um, interestingly in that verse, it doesn't say ha chamor. It just says chamoro, his donkey. So in that verse, there isn't the chamor ha this, this, you know, platonic donkey it's just his donkey but rashi's connecting it there and then he connects it to another verse which i'm going to pull up because we may not know it as well go ahead keep reading so if also the donkey that the messiah will be revealed on, I guess, riding on. Um, as it said in, in Zaria, um, Ani, I guess, the, a poor Android a donkey. I, Good. So I don't have the whole, the whole pasuk, so I guess that's just... Um, so if you look at the screen, the pasuk is there. So many of us have an image of the messianic arrival with Elijah leading him on a donkey, right from the from Harze team down through that valley, uh, through the through the gate on the eastern side of the city, and that image comes from somewhere. 
the prophet Zechariah, Gili Ma'od, Batzion, be very happy, uh, daughter of Zion, which is a, a way in which the prophets often refer to the Jewish people as Batzi, as a, a daughter of Zion. Hari'i Bat Yushalayim, um, uh, trumpet out or, or, or shout out the daughter of Jerusalem. Hinei Malkech Yavolach, your king is coming to you, Sadiq, righteous, Venosha. Um, Nosha is an interesting word here, not that we want to spend too much time on Zechariah, because it's the passive verb of the word to be saved. So like he, he's righteous and saved, redeemed, translated here as triumphant. Um, um, it's interesting. It's this, I don't know who, I don't know what translation Safari uses for, for Nach. Maybe it's JPS. I'm not sure, but translating Tzadik as victorious. That's interesting. And Nosha as triumphant. Put that aside. Ani, Probably here means uh, modest, humble, rather than poor. Rochev al hachamor, sorry, not al hachamor, al hachamor, riding on a donkey. Va'al ir, va'al ayer ben atonot, on a particular type of donkey. I don't know. Uh, uh, it's another he, uh, biblical word for um, donkey, an, an ayer. I think we had that somewhere in Parshat Vayechi, the daughter of an of, of an aton. So here in Zechariah, we have this image of the Mashiach coming on donkey. Neither of the two verses that Rashi throws us to has hachamor, the very, with the hay that Rashi is using as a way of making this point, but he's connecting us backwards to Akedah and forward to the end of days. Um, so that's his resolution to the ha in front of the donkey. Barry? Uh, just going back to something you brought up earlier, the, looking at the conjunction of Benosha, the uh, and I lost the Hebrew, um, the humble, um, the, to be to be both both in, in the heights of Yudhei Bofe and all that realm, and at the same time uh, 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 humble in, in humility, uh, to, to balance those two. So whoever this is in this prophetic image, uh, balance these in the extreme. Yeah, great. Joanna, do you want to say in words what you were chatting? Because I was trying to read it, but I'd rather just hear you talk it out a bit. Yes. So just going back to um, Rebecca's comment about the daughters not being deserving of being mentioned by name, but in that way that masculine plurals in Hebrew, so banav, can include both sons and daughters. I thought Chizkuni's comment was interesting, where he writes, you know, it says Moses took his wife and sons, Seeing that both of his sons were still very young and in need of constant attention by their mother, the mother is mentioned here first, whereas when Yaakov fled from his uncle Levan, um, his sons are mentioned before his wives. So this notion that, you know, women biblically and particularly young girls, you know, um, you know, once boys of our, are of age, women fall further and further down the list to the point that, you know, does the possibility exist, as Rebecca proposed, that he had daughters that, you know, were not mentioned by name and, you know, and are just encompassed in the banav and not worthy of being mentioned on the list separately. Yeah, great. I'm just pulling it up for you to actually see it uh, uh, in, the, in, 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 the, in the original words as you're processing it. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm, um, I guess it's satisfying to know that he's, that that's at least someone was, was wondering about this question about Banav and who was included in it. Great. Um, okay. Um, 
Rebecca, let's see if we have time to at least start the second Rashi since we've already um, made reference to it. Uh, you need to, un- there you go. Okay. Okay. Um, so, um, yeah, he's highlighting that the um, return to, to the land of Egypt, and then it says that Moshe took the, the, the stick or the rod, um, and that there's no early or late um, in the Bible. Right, so we've used this phrase a lot in our class, Ein Torah. I think it's the first time we're seeing Rashi use it, and his, his, his usage of the pretty common phrase is really interesting. It's Ein Mukdamun There is no um, highly particular chronology um, in the Torah. That's his answer. Let's be precise, speaking of Midudak, what's his question? We, we, we've jumped around it, but what is the specific question to which the answer is, oh, don't worry about it. We don't have to think about such specific chronog- chronological precision in the Torah. Right. Well, if, if you were to build the sentence knowing what's, what the way it should happen is he took his wife and his sons and put them on the donkey, and then he took the staff in his hand, and then he went returned to Egypt. So why are those two parts of the sentence Good. Good. So as we were talking about the verse, we were wondering and, and did some beautiful things with the fact that there were two Vayikachs. Rashi, Rashi is less concerned about the two Vayikachs and more concerned about why he didn't take the rod until he already got to Egypt. Right. Um, and some of the super commentaries in Rashi say um, he'd taken the rod when God had told him to take the rod. Like he's had the rod with him the whole time. He didn't he he, he didn't take the rod in the scene, even in this scene when he puts um his wife and, don- and, and kids on the, on the donkey, he took the rod when God said, take this rod. And it's, he's had it with him the whole time. So it's not that he, he wasn't going to leave it where he had picked up his wife and children. So why are we told again that he took the rod? And Rashi's very convenient answer is, don't worry about it, right? It, this is a way of saying um, that it's a, it's, it's a way of saying that we, we want to be reminded that he's got with him uh, the, rod, the, the rod, but the primary thing that's happening in the verse is the going back to Egypt, and we are being reminded that he has the rod with him, not in chronological order, and that's okay, right? And it's very convenient when you have that resolution in your back pocket. You can just say, you know, um, don't, don't worry about it, nothing to see here. Larry, Diane, and then we'll we'll end there because we're about 9, 9.30. Yeah, I know you don't want to go into biblical criticism, but go back to verse 17, before Moses goes back to his father-in-law, and it's very clear. And take with you this rod, which you will perform signs. Cut out all the stuff in between till you get to the end after the etnachta of, of verse um, 18. So it's clear to me, at least, that that's the story. That's one narrative before it was pieced together. Let me, I just want to add something. And another way to look at the verse is in the reader's mind. So I'm going to read it in English. So Moses took his wife and sons, mounted them on an ass, and went back to the land of Egypt. Wait, what happened to the rod that he's supposed to be taking with him? Oh, yes. And he took the rod of God with him. Good, good. Yeah, and if... If we were writing modern prose, we can imagine all different ways in which you you intentionally 
bring something in after it happened in the chronological order to emphasize it, to reinforce it for some reason. Um, and in some ways, Rashi is saying that's exactly what's happening here, right? Sometimes Rashi will not permit the verse, the Torah to have that kind of style and every particularity and, and peculiarity has to have explanation. Here, he's saying the exact opposite. Eh, this, this is just the Torah having style. It already happened. Don't worry about it. It's not out of order. It's just a way of reminding us that he had it with him. Uh, Rebecca, last comment. Well, I, I don't, it, this might be a good opening comment for next week, but reading the Rashi and going back to the, to the donkey, I feel like Rashi is sort of answering the question, why Hachamo? But he's not really taking it another step, which is why would, if this, if this donkey is so special, why isn't Moses riding it? But he's putting his family on it and he's taking the, the rod. So I'm kind of left sort of waiting for a punchline here, um, which I don't know if, if we can fill in. But. It's really interesting, particularly as we think about the verse from Zechariah that Rashi brings us to, because the image in the verse of Zechariah is that the Mashiach's on the donkey and Elijah's leading him. And in our scene, Moshe's family's on the donkey, and it seems that, you know, almost as if Moshe's leading them with, with, with the Mateh. So that's something to linger on as well. You have been listening to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. If you enjoy these podcasts, we invite you to write a review on the Apple Podcast site or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about Temple Beth Am Los Angeles, go to tbala.org.